Good morning. Uh, my name is Q. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal, and i uh, glad that I can be here with you all um, and uh, look at God's Word together with you. Um, so the uh, title of the sermon is called uh, The Church and the Powers. Um, and uh, this is a way of introduction. There was a, a book that came out many years ago, and many of you probably don't know this because it, was, it really was many years ago, <laughs> but it was a bestseller when it came out. Um, the book was entitled, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? Um, and uh, so an alternative title for this sermon could be, Why Do Bad Things Happen to You When You Are Faithful to Jesus? Because if you've been a follower of Jesus for any amount of time, uh, there are times when you are ask that question. We, we like to expect when we follow Jesus faithfully, uh, we'd be rewarded, right? <laughs> with uh, love and with praise, and uh, if not glory, then maybe goodwill. Um, uh, but the truth is, sometimes we don't get rewarded for our faithfulness. Instead, we get opposed or we get pressured to stop or even harassed or harmed in some kind of a way. Uh, I'm not talking about suffering and hardships that you bring on yourself because, you know, you made stupid decisions uh, or you did what you shouldn't have done, um, you know, then, then, you know, you kind of brought that on yourself. Um, you can't justify yourself at that point by saying, you know, haters going to hate, uh, you know, although many people have done exactly that, right? Um, I, I, and I'm not even talking about suffering that comes your way simply because you're living on earth. You know, it's just kind of suffering happens. Um, hardships happen. There's a, but we are talking about a specific kind of suffering that comes your way because you're being faithful in following Jesus. Uh, look at what happens to Peter and John here. They, they just got done healing a man who was lame from the time that he was born who couldn't do anything to support himself except to sit at the temple gate and beg for change from the passers-by. So the healed man was so overjoyed, he was, it says that he was walking around and jumping around and praising God and causing a scene. And what do Peter and John uh, get in return? They get arrested, and they get put in jail. They get dragged before the religious and political leaders of Jerusalem to be interrogated and judged. As another saying goes, no good deed ever goes unpunished, right? And so how do you explain this? Acts says that this story is the story of the church confronting the powers of the world. The disciples carry out the mission that Jesus gives them, and the powers that be see a, uh, see a threat. So there's a confrontation, and there's an opposition, and hardship that comes against the church. Uh, this story marks the first of the many instances when the disciples are going to get dragged before a court, get inter interrogated, and sometimes get condemned, and it will become a pattern that repeats itself in the life of the church. Uh, not only in the, uh, or by the early church in the book of Acts, but the church of Jesus followers for many places and uh, many times, uh, even today, um, this, this uh, uh, plays out in many places around the world. And uh, so there are three lessons that I'd like for us to draw out from, for us from the story of the church confronting the powers. One, it's, the, it's about the prophetic role of the church. Two, is about the call on us as a community to be courageous. And three, um, it's about the cornerstone uh, of the, uh, of the uh, new, new power, the, the kingdom of God. Uh, so first, the prophetic role of the church. When we talk about powers and principalities in the church, we 
have a habit of slipping into thinking about spiritual powers, you know, about the fallen angels, about demons and things like that. And certainly the term powers and principalities does include spiritual powers that we can't necessarily see, but it also has in mind human powers, right? Um, power structures in societies, in nations, and in cities. And that's what I primarily mean, primarily mean when I say powers here, because we're talking about high priests, and we're talking about elders and teachers of the law. These are the people in positions of power who have the authority to judge the right and wrong and have coercive powers, uh, like putting people in prison if they determine that they're in the wrong. Um, so in the Old Testament in Israel, the powers and principalities were um, the kings, right? Uh, people came to the kings for judgments, and they either use their power for righteous purposes, for the sake of establishing justice and serving of the people, or they use their power to, uh, have for sinful purposes, and they serve themselves at the expense of the people, and uh, they perverted justice uh, for their own uses. When, so when, when these kings did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, a prophet from God would usually enter the scene. They would confront the powerful king, and they would proclaim a word from God. And uh, usually the formula is, thus says the Lord, right? Thus says the Lord. And prophets, um, you know, these are people that usually they don't have an army like a king. They have no wealth. Uh, they have no important positions in the government. They, they, the only thing that they got going for them is that they are sent by God. <laughs> And they represent God, and they speak on behalf of God. That's the only thing that they have. And here they are, they come, they come and they come uh, confronting uh, these powerful people. Sometimes the kings would hear the prophet's message, and they would actually repent. Um, one instance is uh, uh, when Nathan the prophet confronted David after he raped Bathsheba and killed her uh, husband Uriah. And he says, you are the man. And, uh, and David was at that moment, overcome with guilt and remorse, and he repented before God. But other times, the kings, they would reject the prophet's message. Um, for instance, Jeremiah, he, he had a really unpopular message. He's, he said that uh, Jerusalem would get overthrown by Babylon, and uh, the, the, the exile, uh, when they get carried away, would last many, many years. Um, one time, as his prophecy was read aloud to the king, after the king heard it, about three or four columns of the scroll of the text, the king cut off what was read with a knife and threw it into the fire. Um, and the, the people didn't want to hear Jeremiah's prophecy so much that they threw him into a well. Um, sometimes prophets who told the truth to power were put to death because the truth they told threatened the powers too much. And so Jesus puts himself in the tradition of these prophets um, as he's entering into Jerusalem for the final week uh, before the crucifixion and proclaims, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you are not willing. Uh, prophets functioned as the conscience, right, of the society, um, as the mouthpiece of God, calling His people back to righteousness, back to justice, back to repentance. Their role was to tell the truth even when they had to face down powerful people who could take their lives because this was a message that God has entrusted to them for the good of His people. Now, that didn't mean that everybody who called themselves a prophet were true prophets. 
There are plenty of instances in the Old Testament when some people are called false prophets. People who said, thus says the Lord. They, they, they uh, have the formula. But the message that they, heard, that they had was actually not from God because they, what they said uh, was uh, uh, motivated by some self-serving agenda. So, for instance, Hananiah is, is, a, is one of those false prophets. He was a contemporary of Jeremiah's. Um, and Jeremiah was unpopular because he said to the exiles, that, uh, to Babylon, this is going to last a long time, but uh, people would boo him, you know, they would hiss at him, they would shout him down. Um, but Hananiah was popular. Uh, they, they applauded him and uh, they said what a great fellow he was because he said the exiles would return to Jerusalem quickly and that this would happen very soon. And so he told the people what they wanted to hear, what they wanted to hear. Uh, false prophets enjoyed playing the part of a prophet and the privileges that it provided, but they were not from the Lord. So Peter and John and the rest of the early church are being presented here as standing in the tradition of the real Old Testament prophets, not the false kinds. They spoke the truth from the Lord, and the powers felt threatened, and that led to a confrontation between the prophets and the powers. The powers told them to stand down, and the prophets said basically what Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. But if I say I will not mention his word or speak any, speak any more in his name, his word is like... Uh, in my heart is like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. Jeremiah 20, 8-9. Or as Paul said, For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Right? 1 Corinthians 9, 16. This is the pattern for the life of the church to come. Several times in the book of Acts, this scene of Christians getting arrested and standing before the powers that be, whether it might be the Sanhedrin or the Roman governors or city magistrates where Christians went as missionaries to be interrogated and judged because of their message, this gets repeated again and again. It kept repeating in the history of the early church. What's the implication here? The church, us, has a prophetic role to play in this world, Right? The church's calling is to be God's mouthpiece to the powers that be, to be the conscience of the world, to say what thus says the Lord to a world that needs to hear from God. This means the church will often get into trouble and be threatened and sometimes suffer because they have a message that they must share. But when I say this, I need to quickly follow that up with some caveats and warnings. First, a prophetic calling is not a license to be a self-righteous critic of everything that you don't agree with. Some people just like to put on the mantle of a prophet on themselves because it makes them feel powerful. You know, they, they like being able to tell people off. That's not a true prophet, right? That's not how a true prophet from God would behave. That's more a mark of a false prophet or somebody who's immature and needs to grow up. Second, caveat. A prophetic calling is also a call to be wise and discerning about what is a worthy fight and what is not a worthy fight. What's good trouble and what's trouble that you unnecessarily and unwisely brought into the situation. Right now, there are a lot of voices claiming to be prophetic voices that you simply need to tune out. You need to ignore them. And while I'm at it, I, I, I need to say this. Cultural war is not a fight for the gospel. 
In fact, cultural war muddies up uh, things so much and end up, ends up undermining the ministry of the gospel and not help the gospel advance. Uh, we are here to be, the calling for us here is to be a winsome kingdom witness to a secular society. And, uh, and if a winsome witness does not mean picking a fight with, with a secular society every chance we get. So, so we, need to, we need to be wise and discerning about what this means, right? Uh, third caveat, because we are living in an age of conspiracy theories, I need to say this. Stay away from conspiracy theories. In the past, these didn't have as much exposure as today because we didn't have the kinds of communication and media technology where, you know, every crackpot on earth can have a global platform. No matter, you know, the soundness of their minds, Christians shouldn't be falling for this, but unfortunately, very sadly, they do. Uh, don't tell people, to, uh, uh, don't, don't listen to people who tell you they know some special knowledge that nobody else has, you know, which is going to explain why there's an injustice or disaster or some way that things are wrong in the world. That's not being prophetic. That's just being intellectually lazy. There's plenty of evil. There's plenty of wrongdoing. And there's plenty of injustice happening out in the open, out in plain sight, without having to manufacture them out of thin air, right? So be wise. Be discerning. Here's the fourth caveat, and I said this in a, in, a, in a previous sermon, but I need to say it again. American Christians, please don't say that we are being persecuted. That's not being prophetic because it's just not accurate. Rowan Williams, the former head of Church of England, said, when you have any contact with real persecuted minorities, you learn to use the word persecuted very chastely. Christians in the West are made to feel uncomfortable by the, because the, uh, you, you know, we are no longer the, the, the owners or the masters, the ones in power of the society. Uh, but, but this is not persecution, not like how Christians in other parts of the world are experiencing. When the world brings a legitimate criticism, instead of listening humbly and correcting our ways, you know, what we tend to do when we say that we are persecuted, we can cry out, look how the world is hating on me. I must be doing God's will. But, but you know, that, that's not exactly what we're being called to. But if we are truly concerned about being prophetic, we would take great care that we have credibility to the world when we speak, right? That we won't be accused of being hypocrites that our lives match our message. Our message of the kingdom is a beautiful message. Our life together should not be an obstacle to people granting a hearing for that message. You have a prophetic calling, church, and so we need to live like it. Right? And uh, here's the second point uh, of the sermon. Uh, it's, the, it's about uh, the courageous community. Um, one of the qualities that lend credibility to the gospel message is the courage of the church. And again, I need to qualify courage as not argumentativeness, not quarrelsomeness. Courage here is steadfastly and faithfully witnessing to the truth of the gospel, in the, even in the face of dangers and threats uh, from the powers. Look what has happened to Peter here. He's, he's a, he was in a very similar position just a few weeks earlier. Back then, the first instance, he was trying to hide his identity while trying to see what was happening with Jesus. He was warming himself with a group of servants around the fire outside of the, the, the chief priest's house. And three times he was confronted and he, they, they asked him, are you not with that man that's being tried? And uh, three times he denied that he knew Jesus. And uh, that's when the rooster crowed. 
And that signaled Peter's failure to stand up for Jesus. He realized that this was what Jesus had said would happen, and he remembered vigorously responding, Never, Lord, I will die with you if I have to. And he ran from that place, and he wept bitterly. But now, he's a completely changed man. Here he is, standing before the same group of really powerful people. Before, he was quaking and he was terrified. Now he's full of the Spirit and he's boldly proclaiming that the Jesus, the one, uh, the one that the chief priests and the rulers crucified, was raised to life. And by the authority of Jesus, the lame man is healed. And indeed, this Jesus is the one and only Savior that God has provided for the salvation of the whole world. What has changed? Jesus said, that's in a word. Jesus is what happened. Jesus was in exactly the same situation that Peter was in. Yet he didn't give in. The powers did their worst to him. Jesus was laid low, as low as anyone could go, but the grave could not hold him down. He rose to new life and ushered in new heaven and new earth. If indeed Jesus went before him and made a way to glory on the other side of the grave for him, what could human beings do to Peter? Right? This is what happened to him. The church has numerous examples throughout history of people who have been courageous in the face of the threatening powers. There have been people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German Lutheran pastor and theologian, who famously stood up to the Nazi government and spoke out against um, Hitler's euthanasia program and the genocide of the Jews. He, he could have stayed abroad. Um, he had the chance to stay safe, but he, instead he decided to return home to Germany and to continue his campaign. And he got arrested by the Gestapo and was imprisoned into a con in a concentration camp. He was accused of a plot to assassinate Hitler, and he was hanged even as the war was coming to an end. Then there's somebody like Rosca Oscar Romero, who was the Archbishop of San Salvador. He was initially quite reluctant to rock the boat, but he awakened to the need to take on a prophetic role when a fellow priest and a friend was murdered by the government. Um, and he kept on speaking out and speaking out against the military government's violent oppression of the poor, knowing that it would put him squarely in danger. He kept on at it until he got assassinated while celebrating Mass. If you're interested, there's a great movie about him with Raul Julia playing Oscar Romero in a, in a signature role. I highly recommend it. And when we hear stories like Bonhoeffer's and Romero's, it's easy to put them on a pedestal, and, and uh, it's really tempting to say, how could I possibly be, you know, little old me, <laughs> on the same category? So it's important to note that for Peter and John, their courage came from their spiritual community, right? It's not because they're such heroes, it's because the community around them gave them the courage. If you keep on reading in the book of, uh, in Acts chapter 4, in the chapter, you're going to find that when the community of believers heard what happened, they got together and they raised their voices together and they prayed. And uh, it's an astounding prayer. They, they didn't ask that they would be spared pain and hardship. Instead, they prayed, enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Courage comes from being in a community, being in a company of fellow disciples. Courage comes from knowing you are in this together, and so you can be bold, you can have courage. There are historical records of early Christian martyrs, and um, you know, persecution would break out from time to time uh, against the church, and when the Christians got rounded up and brought into the circus, they knew, they knew exactly what was going to happen. They knew either they would get burned at the stake or they would get fed to the lions. 
because they wouldn't recant their faith in Christ. And the crowds, they gathered in the circus, and they wanted to see them lose it, and they wanted to see them beg for mercy. Uh, instead, what they saw was a fellowship of believers helping each other to be courageous because they would sing together right in front of all these crowds. They would hold each other, and they would pray with each other. They loved on each other. It wasn't that they were without fear. It was that they were steadied by being together, and they were nurtured by the love and the faith that they all shared in common. That, that's what gave them the courage to face the lions. The crowds in the circus were amazed. They were surprised. And there were sometimes some of them moved. Some of them even begged that the Christians' lives would be spared. That's witness. That's witness. This kind of community doesn't simply arise when you get thrown into the circus as you're about to get fed to the lions. It arises over years of having all things in common with each other. See, in Acts, this community was so tight that they, they literally shared all things together. If you keep on reading in, the, in, 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 uh, keep on reading in Acts chapter 4, and you're going to find another instance of believers selling their possessions to take care of each other so that there was no needy that were among them. The church's response to threats from the powers that be is to pray together and to share all things in common with each other. I think this is what the Lord wants us from His people. When we face pressures and when we face difficulties, deepen your community. Deepen your community. Deepen your love for each other. You're going to think that I watch um, K-dramas all the time. Uh, I don't really. Uh, but one that I've enjoyed <laughs> was Reply 1988. Um, and uh, it, Basically, it follows a group of families living in the same block in Seoul in 1988. Now, back then, South Korea was still a developing country, and uh, these families, they, they don't have much, but they had each other. So they would send their kids uh, to each other's houses with food from the tables at dinner times, and they would crisscross the street uh, between the houses, and, uh, and uh, you know, it, it would depict, so the show would depict them supporting each other and helping each other through all of the ups and downs of life and, uh, you know, the, the challenges of raising kids. And the appeal of the show is nostalgia, you know. It's, uh, it's basically depicting an idealized version of the kind of community that modern-day Koreans feel that they lost now that they're more materially prosperous. Um, you know, money has a way of making us more individualistic, right? It has a way of breaking up our community. But there's one family that's in, this, in the show that's, uh, you know, it's unusual. You, you almost don't notice it at first, but, um, you know, they're, they're, what they're doing is really uh, surprising. It's a family that used to be poor until one day they won the lottery. And the reason that they're unusual is they don't move away to a wealthier neighborhood. To, to, to so that they can be well-loved. Instead, what they do is they buy a house right on the same block, and they rent their basement to one of their neighbor families when they fall into hard times. Money can separate us, and it usually does. But this family used their money to foster community. I know this is an idealized, fictional representation. You know, it's K-drama, after all. Who can take it seriously? But there's another community in the book of Acts that acts in a similar way. The early church used their money not to separate, but to cultivate a common life. And I think that's what Stanley Hauerwas, uh, a theologian, uh, had in mind when he said that the church is God's alternative community. It stands 
as a sign of God's kingdom in the world. That, that a community that speaks and reveals a different order of life than the consumerism, the individualism, the workism that mark our world's way of life. When you know that you belong to a community that loves like this, it gives you strength to do things that you didn't think was possible for you. Um, it, you know, it gives you the strength to do anything that you can to try to love. That's the secret sauce of the apostles' courage, and that's what the Lord wants for us to build. Uh, are we looking out for each other? Are we building the kind of community which is going to give us strength to face whatever life might throw at us and remain faithful to the Lord's calling to be His witness in this world? Remember, there's no them. There's only us in the body of Christ. We should not be divided. We are in this together. You know, Paul says, the foot does not say to the hand, I don't need you. We need every one of you. So we care for each other. We look out for each other. Uh, we, 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 uh, we get each other's backs. We, we don't let anyone fall by the wayside. That's the life that we are being called to. I know that we fall short. Doesn't mean that's not our calling. Third, let's talk about the cornerstone of the world. Speaking of building, Peter's testimony, or sermon, depending on how you look at it, ends with this. Jesus is the stone that you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. What does it mean, builders? Uh, we are all meaning makers. That's what it means to be made in God's image. You know, that's what Adam did um, when he named all of the animals in the garden. Um, that means that we're also world builders. Uh, and I don't mean, you know, the, the things that you do in Minecraft. Um, we, we build societies, we build nations, we build cities. And uh, especially those who are, of, who are in power, like these people in the Sanhedrin. But when we seek to build any of this, anything, our lives, our families, um, our households, our, our cities, uh, and when we try to do this apart from God, we seek, when we try to uh, make meaning apart from God, we are going to stumble. Whatever we build, it's going, to, it's going to start to crack. It's going to fall apart, inevitably. And in, injustice, unrighteousness, sin and death seep in and corrupt the whole enterprise. And that's the story of the fall in Genesis 3. But Jesus is the cornerstone. And that means that He is the one God-approved and God-provided centerpiece of all of our meaning-making and world-building. Um, it's like that Jenga piece, you know, that is holding everything together and you, when you pull it out, then everything falls apart. But he, he is that God-provided peace when Adam and Eve ate the fruit that they tried. And they, what they were trying to do was determine right and wrong on their own. They were trying to build a life on their own apart from God. They rejected the cornerstone. But God provided us with Jesus Christ so that we might get another opportunity to gain wisdom from God and a life with God by building our lives on the chief cornerstone, the true foundation. We're getting another opportunity, a new creation, because of Jesus. There is no other name under heaven given to humankind by which we must be saved, Peter declares. And he's taking out a position that is at odds with the belief of many people in our world today. Uh, remember how I said earlier, don't pick fights over things like culture wars? Well, here is the one thing that the church does not budge on. It's their confession that Jesus is the one and only Redeemer, 
that He alone is the Savior of the world, that He is the one mediator between God and humanity, the church must share the news that God gave us Jesus as Lord. It's fire shut up in our bones. We must proclaim it. We must do it with the love for the world, of course, right? With gentleness, with care that unbelievers will be able to hear and uh, so that they can understand with... Uh, uh, and we need to do it winsomely, not argumentatively, not in a quarrelsome way, so people are not going to reject Jesus because of our obtuseness and immaturity. But this is what the church fulfills its prophetic role on. And uh, this is where it does that and say, here I stand. The disciples don't, didn't pick this fight, but they made their stand here when they were told to stop sharing the good news of Jesus. So for us, as a church in Philadelphia today, how we make a stand on this is not get defensive and cry about uh, how we're getting persecuted, but we do need to be obsessed with this. This is a precious message that we've been entrusted. How will the world hear it? How will we get the message out? How will the way that we live display the beauty and the love of Jesus to people of our city? How will we communicate well His invitation for them to come under His reign of peace? That's the prophetic role, you see. That's the missional call. And this is so precious. We are to devote our lives to it. And the reason that these people in power are so threatened by this is because, you know, um, they, at least they hold the advantage. They occupy the positions of power in the house with the cracks. But, and so they're unwilling to let it go uh, and uh, make way for Jesus as the chief cornerstone. It means the, that the old powers and their world were the ones that were actually getting rejected. It's a great reversal of God's kingdom. Those who are first will be last, and those who are last will be first. And, um, and as it says in Psalm 118, which is where the quotation was taken from, the Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is why we don't get overly impressed with people who hold power and wealth and influence in the world today. You know, they're here today, kings of the world, but they're gone tomorrow. Their kingdoms washed away like sandcastles in, sandcastles in the beach. They, they might be in positions to judge you today, but it's Jesus who will end up judging all of us and judging them. This is why we don't need to fear anything in this world. But we are to be impressed by our chief cornerstone who, brought, who has brought down the mighty and has lifted up the lowly in his kingdom. So we don't despair when hardships come our way, when we are faithful to Christ. In time, the powers of the world will pass away, and those who put their faith in Jesus will be lifted up. So let us make Christ our chief cornerstone in everything that we do, in our individual lives, in our life together as church, in our contributions towards building our society, toward our city. That's what we mean when we confess Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He is the one piece that holds everything together in all of reality. He is the cornerstone that cannot be missing. Otherwise, it all tumbles and falls. He becomes our cornerstone by becoming, being rejected by the powers of the world, by going to the cross, by being raised from the dead to usher in a new world that God has always intended for us. He becomes our all in all by coming to rescue us and giving His life for us. So people of God, let us not give in to fear. Let's live courageous lives. Let's live boldly. Let's live with love for the world. For God has so loved the world. Let's build the church. Let's build community. Let's learn how to love each other. Let's live as witnesses to Jesus and to his kingdom. Let's pray.